When US and Soviet manned spaceships are hijacked in Earth's orbit, Agent 007 must race to prevent a nuclear war between the superpowers. His pulse-pounding missions takes him to Japan, where he battles the evil Spectre organization and its diabolical leader, Ernst Stavart Blofeld. Making its premiere in London and opening in the UK on the 12th of June 1967 and across the USA the very next day, You Only Live Twice is the fifth James Bond film and cost $9.5 million to make and brought in $111.6 million at the worldwide box office. Starring Sean Connery and directed by Lewis Gilbert, the vital statistics are Conquests 3, Martinis 0, Kills 21, Bond James Bonds 0. Variety said, Sean Connery plays 007 with his usual finesse. The rest of the cast in the $9.5 million film is strictly secondary, although Akiko Wakabashi and Tetsuro Tamba register well as Bond's Japanese cohorts. Donald Pleasance makes a suitably menacing German heavy who appears in the final film's final scenes. We can discuss that. Um, so to talk about You Only Live Twice this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Luella Chapman, Sean Longmore and Tom Butler. Would you like to introduce yourself, please? Let's go in alphabetical order. I'm Tom Butler. I'm a, 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 a movies journalist and uh, also the co-host of the James Bond A to Z podcast. Hello, I'm uh, <clears throat> I'm Luella and I'm the author of Fashioning James Bond, Costume, Gender and Identity in the World of 007. And I'm Sean Longmore. I'm a graphic designer who sometimes does James Bondy things. I'm not quite as qualified as you guys, so I'll, I'll, be, I'll just be sitting and listening really intently for a lot. Okay, so the first category is the one with. So if you only live twice, what is the motif that you could hang your hat on for this film? Um, if you imagine the minimalist poster or the one thing that if you close your eyes, you could see or hear, how would you describe you only live twice to a casual moviegoer? So you only live twice is the one with. Um, I'm going to say it's the one with the volcano lair. I think if mm. people um, are unfamiliar with James Bond, then they will be f- familiar with the uh, uh, the trope of the volcano lair, and this is where it began. Um, obviously, with the uh, the incredible Ken Adams set built at Pinewood. Um, you know, it's been spoofed so many times. Uh, Austin Powers and The Simpsons, just a just a, uh, name too. But um, I would say if you're gonna put an image in people's mind that they will remember and go, yeah, that's the one. I'd say I'd say it's got to be that, right? Yeah, often parodied, never matched. Never. I'd say, even within the Bond franchise itself. Never. Sean Luella, what would you like to throw in? You know, your backups to the volcano choice. <laughs> oh, ooh, well, you know, um, I'd like to say that it's the, the first Bond film we see uh, James Bond wear a Royal uh, Navy commander's uniform. Oh, the oh. one with the uniform. It's a good shout. Were you disappointed, Luella, that we didn't get to see Craig in a uniform in his oh, tenure? Uh, oh, that not really, because I think the way they situated Daniel Craig was was more army in a in a sense. Until, of course, No Time to Die. Um, and I don't know whether I should say this on the podcast, but I think uh, I think I prefer to see Sean Connery in a uh, naval uniform right. than Daniel Craig myself. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, was Craig a Navy commander or was he something else? He was an honorary naval commander. He was made. Yeah. He, his character started off with the backstory in Casino Royale as an SBS officer. Right. Um, came from the Special Boat Service rather than the SAS, uh, or rather than from the Navy. So he's SBS in the, in the rewritten history. Um, Sean, what were you going to go for? Uh, I'll, I'll go for uh, the, the other obvious one. And this is the one with Japan. 
Um, and this is the one where they kind of go further in a way that they've than they've gone before and really step into and embrace another culture and you get to see um, mm. lots of sort of it, it's some of it kind of borderlines on touristy sort of footage, but lots of wonderful shots of Japan. I think another contender could be uh, the space uh, side, obviously, unless until Moonraker had come along and sort of usurped it. I think uh, you could definitely pin this one as being the space race James Bond film um, because of the time it was made uh, and it plays such a big part of it. In fact, this is one I'm taking uh, my father-in-law to because he said it's the he says I want to see that one because I really like space and I never really thought of it as a space movie, but right. um, yeah, I think that's probably a good uh, hook for it as well. But Japan. Uh, really it's just so important to the setting of this movie isn't it um absolutely uh, and i think we'll speak a bit more about that as well um just following on from the volcano layer as well i guess the other memorable thing from that and and the one that people always remember is the blow fell with the scar because Mm -hmm. um this is where it comes from right um yes what did you think about variety calling him a german heavy (laughs) Back in 1967, I thought I was. I was researching this. The old reviews. I thought it was a little bit weird. Are, th- are they talking about Blofeld there? Donald Pleasance makes a suitably menacing German heavy who appears in the film's final scenes. Ah, that was and a capsule is, review. What is Blofeld's lineage officially? Is he from Swiss? Isn't it? It's Swiss. Yeah, interesting that they said German, but I mean, it is a, a, a sort of a very bland European accent, isn't it? That a Donald Pleasance goes for, right? Mm. Right. So let's just assume the bad guys are German, right? That's I'm sure it's <laughs> <laughs> the variety reporter hasn't read the books, obviously, and uh right. just relying on these old stereotypes, I'm sure. I guess maybe yes. there's some I just suppose there's some kind of parallel. Um that kind of dictatory uh looking back at World War Two imagery, I guess. Um mm. I'd say. I was just wondering it's it's just odd that they call him a heavy. Right. Because he's a very <laughs> yeah. little man. <laughs> Um, maybe uh, it's, he's particularly dense I don't know <laughs> <laughs> maybe he's heavier in space that's, that's where they go <laughs> okay so uh, the Bond cocktail um, often James Bond films are broken down into formulas um, so here's a list of ingredients we've got teaser titles, plot, women villains, allies, mm-hmm. Bond himself action locations, dialogue and style which we've come to learn this podcast can mean anything um, would you like to each pick an ingredient for the Bond cocktail that you feel is somehow unique or particularly important to this film compared to the rest of the series and why? And it can be a positive or a negative. Okay, um, we've got a couple. Um, just based on what we were just talking about uh, in relation to uh, Donald Pleasance's Blofeld, you know, this is the, the first Blofeld in the series that wears the kind of the mouse suit, which of course then becomes synonymous with what Blofeld wears and indeed Doctor Evil parodies in the in the Austin Powers films, you know the the kind of very iconic look um, worn by Blofeld. But also, what's very interesting about this film in terms of cocktails is, of course, the the three formula Bond woman films, um, mm. which I personally argue don't really work since Goldfinger. Um, but you know, you've got some very interesting things being said from Roald Dahl about you know the the three formula Bond girl. Um, you know, the first one needs to be bumped off by the en- enemy, preferably in Bond's arms. Um, the bad Bond girl, in inverted commas, needs to be, quote, bumped off, preferably in an original fashion. And then finally, the uh, the 
third bongo, usually a good bongo, must uh, on no account be killed, according to uh, Roald Dahl. Uh, and Bond must be in a position at the end of the film to take any, quote, lecherous liberties uh, with her at the end of the story. Um, and her in her bikini is kept for um, the image in the fade out. And I think that's very much evident in You Only Live Twice as part of the Bond formula. So would you say that's um, that formula um, is not particularly strong in this film? Um, or the way it's executed isn't very strong? I think compared my to say Goldfinger. Is, you know, I think there's too many women in it, you know, in, in Fleming's original novel. You know, it's it's just Kissy Suzuki, isn't it? So, you know, and we, mm-hmm. we have instead we've got Aki, who I think is a, a fabulous character, who then gets killed off. You know, we've got uh Karen Dawes, Helga Brandt, who is effectively uh, Fiona Volpe Mark II from Thunderball, but with less kind of agency over the way her character's performed. And then we have Formi Hammer at the end, you know, playing Kissy Suzuki, who when she goes down into the volcano scene, she's not in a ninja outfit, you know, she's wearing this bikini with this tiny little kind of cotton shift top. Uh, unlike all the men who are wearing their ninja outfits. So she's ready at the end to then escape with Bond. And I just think it's quite interesting, um, the kind of imbalance of portrayal. Yeah. Um, Helga Brandt's agency is what, stealing a recipe for monosodium glutamate. It's not quite the same, <laughs> is it? <laughs> um, Sean or Tom, which ingredient would you like to pick for this film? Well, I, I was gonna I'm I'm gonna jump in and kind of follow on that, but because uh, I was gonna talk about Rodal a little bit later, but I can bring it forward and sort of improvise. Um, but uh, with the particularly sort of like the death of Aki there, um, I've I've um, studied part of Rodal um, at A level. I did a sort of A level performance, and I had to do a lot of sort of like searching to his life. Um, and what's really interesting about how he Right, women in this film, and particularly the death of Aki, is um, Roald Dahl suffered really heavily in the 60s with a sort of depression. Um, his daughter died at the very start of the 60s, and she was like seven or eight. Um, and so a lot of the sort of tales that we traditionally show with, um, associate with Roald Dahl were sort of um, a result of him going and sitting in a shed at the bottom of the garden and sort of escaping through his depression. Um, and I think that kind of comes into what he does here and kind of you can see in the script with the way the formula that the first Bond girl has to die is the sacrificial lamb is something we've only seen in up to in what Goldfinger at this point with Jill Masterson and then Thunderball with Paula and their characters in those two films aren't particularly very well fleshed out but here you get Aki, who's a character who's very fleshed out and who's a character you kind of really grow to like and she's given a lot to do and she's sort of almost given a sort of equal sort of bit of um, share of the spy work to Bond at this point. And so then when she's mm-hmm. sort of, she dies and she dies a death that is ultimately an accidental death, it kind of really hits and resonates with you. And I can't help but think that... Um, my interpretation of it is that that Roald Dahl's putting something of that sort of depression that he was going through into the script there and getting the audience to sort of feel what it's like to lose someone that um, you're in a way growing fond of. Um, So I think there's kind of a lot that Roald Dahl brings to the formula that we almost take for granted now, but 
that then he's brought that have come from his experiences and that are then stuck with Bond. And that three-girl mm. formula has kind of stuck to later on. That's really interesting, Sean. I didn't know that about Roald Dahl at all. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's re- there's it's really interesting to read up. But he, yeah, he he was a very very depressed man and suffered with a lot of sort of mental health issues after the death of his daughter. Very hard. Um, so it kind of when you're looking at this script, which is filled with death and stuff like that, it 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 kind of doesn't seem like it's coming from as much of a jokey jovial place as you would initially sort right. of expect. I think most people at the time, maybe even today, would just think of him as a children's author, mm-hmm. right? So, I think he must... wasn't even a children's author by this point. I could be wrong, ah. um, but I think that came possibly a little bit later, um, the children's author stuff. I know he wrote a book about gremlins during World War II. Um, famously, he was connected with Ian Fleming in the war as well through, um, I think their work in Canada, perhaps, or in Washington. Um, but yeah, I think Roald Dahl's depression, I think, extended a bit further as well because his wife, Pat- Patricia O'Neill, also suffered a quite a serious stroke um, and had to be cared for by him. And then also, I think he had a son or a daughter and they were walking out with them in a pushchair one day and the, 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 the pushchair got hit by a car. And so that baby also got put into hospital, into coma for a long time. So um, he is a really oh interesting character. Um but I'd never really considered that idea of the life being snuffed out as applying to You Only Live Twice. I think that's really fascinating. Um, I think one thing you can also credit Roald Dahl for on this film is how up to this point, you know, it's really interesting watching them in sequential order. Up to this point, the, the Bond films have been like boys' own adventures. And it's in this film that the series takes a, a leap into fantasy, I think. Mm. You know, you see this, you, you go into space there is the huge volcano lair. Um, there's monorails. There's all that sort of stuff. Um, and to me, that is something that never—it's never lost, is it? It's there then throughout mm. the DNA of Bond from this point onwards. Right. Um, the 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 thing I was going to say is the location. Sean's already mentioned it, but Japan is such a huge part to this. Um, I've never been to Japan, but uh, this film really makes it look exotic very humid you know you can see the sweat on people's faces Mm. and um what's really interesting as well is how ken adam matches the set design up to the real life japan so you never once question that they're filming on a soundstage you know when you go into uh, tiger's office right and he's got that interesting like pale pine paneling and all that sort of stuff you know, you just assume they are. Yeah, they're still in Japan because it all matches up. Um, I think it gives a real sense of time and place to this movie, um, which some later films, they some of them manage to capture it, but I think this one really, really does. You know, you're in Japan, you're in you're in foreign land here. Um, and I think that really, yeah, really, really works for this movie. It gives it swagger, I think, mm. um, this film, unlike... I mean, Thunderball is obviously a big swaggering movie, but this one really, um, yeah, it really puts it on the screen, I think. That's a good show. We talked about this in an episode we did a couple of years ago, actually, about um, the co- the context of doing this film in Japan in 1967, um, a shade over 20 years after the end of World War II, and you've got a British and American film crew coming into Japan. Um, culturally, I mean, that it's an interesting choice that they did it. Um, 
given there was still a lot of resentment, especially in the US, against Japanese culture at that time. Um, so, but Bond's always gone to places where regular folks don't, can't, or won't go. Right? Um, we're running out of them, um, but it's a good call, Japan. All right. So, underappreciated elements. Um, what thing, big or very, very small, uh, would you like to bring to people's attention so the next time they watch this movie, they can look out for it and maybe appreciate it more than they do now? So, underappreciated element. Uh, okay, well, I was going to go with Rodal, but I will go underappreciated element. It's probably an element that isn't underappreciated at all, that everyone loves. Uh, I did this, I said this on the last one I was on, but it's got to be John Barry here. Yes. Um, this is one of Barry's best. Um, and even if it is very much appreciated, it should be appreciated even more because it's just a brilliant score. Um, I, I often find myself sticking it on just to listen to from start to finish and you get a you get everything from the big bombastic stuff to then the really beautiful melodic stuff that plays um during sort of the wedding sequence um it's just fantastic and i highly recommend anyone that's got a vinyl player to go out and try and seek a vinyl of this because the whole thing just opens up so wonderfully in that sound space um and it's really interesting when you look there's some great photos that are like production shots from when they were recording this soundtrack mm-hmm. and the space they recorded it. I think it was a very tiny studio space near Abbey Road. Um, but it, it's absolutely, it is absolutely tiny. And the or- there's some photos um, of the orchestra just sort of crammed into this tiny room. Um, and it's amazing that such a big, wide sound came from that, that I think every, every, every note in this film for the soundtrack is absolutely spot on. They've done a couple of um, live symphony orchestra kind of performances of uh, Casino. Haven't they done Skyfall as well? Yes, um, yes. Where you go and watch the movie and it's just the orchestra. Mm. Would this be your pick then, Sean, out of all the films? If you could go and see a performance of the soundtrack live, it would be your own live twice. Oh, that's a tricky one. It would either be this or Moonraker for me. But both of them mm. have that really big sound and then those wonderful moments of sort of um, – that sort of, they're sort of almost like intimate and it feels sort of personal in a little way. It's like you could put this music on and really sort of, you could, you could play Mountains and Sunsets, for example, and look out and really start to sort of appreciate your world on a personal level. But then also then you'll stick Capsule in Space on and you're wanting to imagine spaceships and <laughs> big, your life being action-packed is great. And then there's like the pacey stuff where the helicopter's going through Japan. It's just, I, I, I think this is, Barry, up to this point, looking at the films um, one after one another, um, he's just got better and better. And it, it, he then does, I think, get even better on the next one. But here he really brings everything. There's a real, And I guess that's a sense you could apply to a lot of the production clue, crew, is that this kind of feels like a finale, in a way, of a movie. You kind of get the sense that if they'd have decided that they couldn't carry on without Connery and they'd have wrapped up here, it would have been right. a sort of, it's, it would have been a good wrap up. It would have been a good ending. And there's sort of that mentality that I think all the crew here are putting in, putting in their all and really going bigger and better and really following through with it. And so that's something that goes right across the production, not even just the music, but Barry certainly amplifies that. Mm. Tom Manuela, underappreciated element. I'm going to step on your shoes slightly here, Luella. Um, <laughs> I love I love Connery's wardrobe in this um, in this movie. 
um, and particularly in the scene uh, Asato Chemicals. Um, and he's got these amazing shoes on. I don't know if you've noticed it, but like he's got, I don't know what they're called, but they're white and black. And you'll know better than I will, Luella, but um, <laughs> he looks he looks so good. And he's got this like amazing overcoat on as well. Um, this is where he has the big fight with the guy who is the rock's granddad um, and hits him with a sofa. Uh, but I just think he looks absolutely incredible. And you just don't see Bond looking that cool very often or i don't think you do um and then the beyond that obviously him in the naval uniform and then him in the in the gray ninja suit at the end as well i just think it works really really well in this movie and i think like like sean says this movie feels like everyone's stepped up their game um and and thrown everything at it um and that's just one tiny little element within the film i think that really helps um, just to elevate it beyond what's come before. Um, not that I'm not saying it's better than all that's come before, but like I just think the, the, the costuming in this in this film is great, especially around Bond himself. Um, so yeah, that would be my pick. Do, Tom, do you think Connery's attitude in this film sort of makes him look a bit cooler, kind of because he's <laughs> checked out a little bit? <laughs> Maybe, yeah. You do get, yeah. There is a sense of that, isn't there? I don't feel it that badly, um, to be honest, but. Um, yeah, it probably helps. I mean, he's he's in peak physical condition, isn't he? I think from Goldfinger to to this one, those three together, to Thunderball and this one, he just looks great. I'm not sure about the wig, but um, generally he does look great uh, in this. And pacing across the screen like the Panther that he always was, but I don't know. It's just um, he 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 is terrific in. The, well, I think he's great in this. And like, like you say, I know people say he looks bored in this one, but um, I don't feel that myself. Oh no! I always think it's it's kind of like um, that. He used to speak about that analogy that Terence Young told him that he should be able to wear a suit really casually and sleeping it, and just be able to do the washing up in it or whatever it was in it. Um, and I kind of feel he's got that attitude here in that he's. I, I guess he was intentionally maybe not putting in as much effort as he has previously, but by doing that, he comes across as being able to be Bond just so effortlessly and so easily. Except from when he looks like Spock and they dress him up. <laughs> No. <laughs> <laughs> I get if the, if this is definitely the one with where Bond gets done up like a Japanese man, <laughs> right? Um, mm. That's the elephant in the room. Um, that if you were going to say to someone who was not a fan of the films, it's this one, then they'd know instantly, wouldn't they? Um, you mentioned the ninja suit. Is it a ninja suit or is it cinema's first tactical turtleneck? <laughs> <laughs> oft parodied by Archer and stuff um, Luella underappreciated element it, well I mean just to come into what, what Tom and you, and you have all been saying you know what's quite interesting about You Only Live Twice is it's the first time since Doctor No that you don't actually have a costume designer uh, employed full time on the films and it's very much Eileen Sullivan that is the driving force behind those decisions um, so I'm sure if she was with us today, she'd be really chuffed to hear that you all love his costumes. And, um, you know, I think that's fantastic. And um, what is interesting, I think, with You Only Live Twice is you have a lot more casual wear um, going on. I mean, obviously in Thunderball you have, you know, your, your shorts and things like that. But, you know, there's there's more of a move, like you've mentioned, the ninja suits and the disguise that you mentioned Um you know, the kimonos and things like that. And just in terms of costume and thinking about the women, 
you know, it's really interesting, isn't it, how Aki starts off uh, very much wearing, you know, westernised Mary Quant style 1960s clothing mm-hmm. and then moves slowly towards the Japanese, you know, attire that she wears. Whereas with uh, Kissy Suzuki, you know, she starts off very traditional wedding Japanese costume and then moves to the westernised Ursa Andress bikini for, for the end. Right. And I think that's really interesting in terms of their characters. And one thing I think in terms of costume that is great to look out for is the Japanese patterns and mo- motifs. Um, but also someone we haven't mentioned yet, I think, in relation to this film is is Tiger Tanaka and how cool he is. Um <laughs> You know, because I, I really like his character. I think he's fabulous. What's interesting about this film is um, the Variety review from 67 mentions the forgettable cast. None of the characters other than the MI6 recurring regulars were their first choice for this film. Mm-hmm. For every single role, they had somebody else um, that didn't work out. Um, interesting. But I think Tanaka was one that they actually, it worked out for the better mm-hmm. with him. Because the two female leads, um, they swap roles, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Karen Dorr was not first choice to play Helga. Obviously, we all know Donald Pleasance wasn't first choice to play Blofeld. Um, and you go down the list, um, and they had somebody else <laughs> preferred for every single role. And it's really weird for a Bond film that they didn't land any of their first choices in the cast, especially given the, the budget and the scale of production. Um, they're, they're all busy making Casino Royale. <laughs> for more money <laughs> even more money i think that's uh, something worth mentioning though isn't it that casino this is the first bond film that's got a competing bond film to go up against yes. and maybe that plays a part into the way that everyone sort of ups their game slightly um is that they've got to do that the very best they can like you say as well as connery leaving but um there was a was it that they were both going to come out at the same time and one of them then delayed is that right? Well, never say never again. That was the plan, and they delayed, right? Um, yeah. But I do wonder if, because um, I mean, you know the stories about this better than anybody on here, I think, Sean, right? About the history of 60, Casino 67, when the, the crazy sets that were built and never mm-hmm. used. Yeah. And it I just was... wonder if, I just wonder if the, the, the Casino Rail production team driving past the M25, whenever it was, and seeing the volcano being built, <laughs> like, we've got to up our game, boys. Let's build some more sets. Well, I think that was that's the approach to Casino Royale 67 the whole way, isn't it? Is that Feldman was just throwing money at any problem that arose. He just threw more and more money at it. And it's it's bonkers that by there's some, some stat that Casino Royale 67 was in some way the most expensive for something i don't know but one of the most expensive films ever made at the time and then you only live tw- you only live twice the budget was probably only a fraction of what was spent on casino royale and yet the film looks so much more polished and sleeked and so much bigger and more impressive it's it's crazy that that whole production is just i highly recommend there's some great books out there um on casino royale 67 but it, it it's it's worth looking into and worth reading into if you're a Bond fan because the whole thing was just wild. All right. Well, we've dipped into this already, but trivia. Um, share a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting. Obviously, like most of the continuity and all that kind of trivia has been online for years, but is there something that you'd like to share about this film that you that tickles you particularly? Just a fun one on Casino Royale. So Burke Kwok is in that film and in this film. Mm. That's a, that's a, just a fun little tidbit, I think. I don't know if there's any others that are both in this film and in Casino Royale 67. I know there's lots of other crossovers with Bond, but um, 
this film particularly. I think he's the only one, right? I believe you might be right. Luella, is there any trivia about this film you'd like to point out? Yeah, um, I guess that it, I would say that it's not the first time that Charles Gray, who plays Deco Henderson in You Only Live Twice, actually appears in a piece of Bond-related media. Um, just before, well, about six months before the release of From Russia of Love, he actually is involved in a angel face, uh, a Pond's angel face lipstick, uh, which is branded 007. And they make um, an advertisement for it that's supposed to be a tie-in with From Russia of Love. Um, but it also happens to be directed by Guy Hamilton as well. So oh, this is no before way. Goldfinger. <laughs> So actually, Charles Gray, his first sort of Bond appearance, you could say, is in this rather fun lipstick advert. And you can see it online uh, for free if, if anyone's interested. But, um, you know, and of course, he goes on to play my very favourite Blofeld in Diamonds of Forever. So that's just a bit of trivia for you. That, I, that is great. I had no idea that he was in oh, yeah, that, that's, that's That's a good bit of trivia. Who is he playing in the commercial, Luella? Um, well, he was, playing, he was doing the voiceover, and he does this wonderful voice, voiceover talking, and he, he, you also see the back of him. He's sort of like the boyfriend of the girl in the, the advert who's putting the lipstick on her lips. And so you see the back of him, and then he's he says at the end, you know, oh, you know, buy the... Uh, Buy the 007 lipstick in the most ruthless pink. And he emphasised ruthless. <laughs> and it's really amusing. But I will send uh, you all the link to it so you can share it with uh, people who are listening to the podcast so they can watch it for themselves. Yeah. Link will be in the description. That's awesome, Luella. That's fantastic. Did Charles Gray come back to do the, vo- the, the pyramids in Spy Who Loved Me as well? Yes, I believe so. There's the, the voice online. Of... Yes. Yeah. Um, I I've read that the actual voiceover it was like okay that it, it already existed so I've heard that it wasn't him which I find quite sad but I don't know for definite. So. I, I I don't think they would have used one that existed because there'd be all kind of like rights clearances and whatnot. I would lean on that they probably did re-record it so that they owned it. It it does kind of sound like him. Yeah, I I'm sure I've read that somewhere. I could be wrong. So. Uh, Vic Armstrong, the stunt performer mm. who went on to become a, a second unit director on James Bond uh, in the Brosnan era, he makes his uh, James Bond debut in You Only Live Twice as a ninja rappelling down into the volcano. Um, and it was one of his first stunt jobs, I believe. Um, he writes about it in his book, uh, which is great, the, the True Adventures of the World's Greatest Stuntman. And he talks about there's a the way that they did it was very um there was no safety harnesses for them rappelling down they basically just did it on these ropes and i think one poor stuntman uh didn't break soon enough and broke both his ankles when he hit the floor of the uh of of the studio um but yeah obviously impossible to spot vic armstrong in this movie but he is in there somewhere um and would just be the start of a very long relationship with bond i think he did yeah lots of different uh jobs on the Bond films throughout the Roger Moore, Timothy Dalton, right. Piers Brosnan. Yeah. Right up to what was his last, must have been Die Another Day would be his last one, I guess. Die Another Day was his last connection with the Bond series. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. My... And then he went on to direct a film with Nicolas Cage and, um, and then obviously with Craig Gearer, they, they moved on to a different team. Yeah. Wasn't it like a, didn't he do a faith based one about like, yes, 
Yeah. Was it that doesn't one? get good reviews. No. Just <laughs> <laughs> that. Um, um, I, it's my little bit of trivia. I'm going to stick with the casting theme because, you know, that's, I like this theme that's going off. Um, is for the Doctor Who fans out there. I know there's quite a bit of James Bond Doctor Who crossover in fandom. There is. Um, there are two very prominent Doctor Who actors in this film that have very small roles. roles. Um, but very, that impressed me. Um, so Anthony Ainley, who in Doctor Who Circles oh, yes. is famous as the master. Uh, yes. He is. He's one of the Hong Kong police, isn't he? Yes. At the start, he's the guy that goes, um, he, he died on the job. He would have wanted it this way. Um, you only Sorry. see like him in sort of like vague profile. Um, and then do you know the second one, James? It's probably Burt Kwok, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, no. Because no, he's um, in everything. No, no, it's even more surprising. Um, and I didn't know about this until a friend pointed it out to me recently. Um, Fraser Hines is oh, in this movie. Yes. And he is the voiceover for Osato's secretary and the guy in who does the Tannoy announcements in the volcano layer. So he's the guy that's, um, and he's like, um, evacuate the controls and astronauts right. in position and what he says like that. And he does the voiceover for that. And it's very strange because he doesn't sound anything like him when you compare voices. And this right. would have been when he was in Doctor Who as well at the yes. time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's interesting, actually, that looking at the cast list for this film, this kind of, I think this one is sort of the start of a Bond tradition where British, quite like famous British television actors just sort of pop up. Um, because I think is Ed Bishop is in this one, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Somewhere at the start. And then I think George Baker's yes, he in is. here somewhere and just lots of little actors like that. And this is, I think, where that kind of starts off and then carries out or carries on through the 70s is little random actors that if you know British TV from the 70s, right. 80s, you'll go, ah, ah. Shane Rimmer yeah. as well. Yes. Yes, of course. Cool trivia. Um, so final verdicts. Uh, we don't ask people to rank their films numerically because that is a fool's errand. So what we're going to ask you is, is it in your top, middle, or bottom tier of Bond movies. And by bottom tier, we don't mean it's bad. We just mean it's ones you watch the least, shall we say. So is it in your top, middle, or bottom, and your personal feelings? All right, Sean, you want to go first on your ranking then? Oh, my rank? Oh, well, as you probably guessed from a tone of voice, this is top tier Bond. This. This is fabulous. I I love it. Um... I, I think this might be my favorite Connery, um, but I, anyone that knows me and knows my style of art knows that I like big, loud, explody things, but I, I have the Japanese <laughs> poster for this on my wall. I, I just love this film. I love how it kind of, it's full on. It's Everyone's putting in their all. It's just a ride. I love it as a kid. I get the same excitement from it now. I still am on sort of like when it gets to that sequence at the end and the, the timer's counting down and even though I know what's going to happen, I still kind of feel like the pressure thanks to the music and the editing. The, I, I just think this is superb, Bond, superb. And it's almost, it's it bewilders me that then somehow they managed to top it two years later, but it's fantastic. Mm. Oh, okay. Um I mean, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to say that it's actually in my my bottom tier bond. <laughs> Sorry, um, that's fair. But then you're also talking to the very strange person who thinks Diamonds Are Forever is in top tier bond. So you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I know we could debate about this all evening, but we don't have time. Um, but for me, you know, I really like uh, Year of Twice for the volcano and the set design and 
Elasm is, is wonderful and brilliant, and I think there's some wonderful costume choices going in on it. But yeah, just the I, I think that I, I'm not a massive fan of the script. I think they maybe are trying to do a bit too much with it um, in terms of the amount, particularly of, of women they have uh, included in the film. Um, but I think the music is wonderful, which has been said before. Uh, I think Tiger Snack is great, and it's great to see uh, Charles Gray in his role before his wonderful Blofeld in Diamonds of Forever. All right, we've got one top, one bottom. Tom? Well, I think if I think if you'd asked me about a year ago, I would have said this is middle tier Bond for me, but I think I'm coming around to this being top tier. Um, mm. And uh, I think, yeah, I think the reason is because I think I'm just warming to... Uh, this is one that I loved as a child and for all the reasons that, you know, made it a great, make it a great movie, the space stuff, the volcano lair, the villain, the just the Japan, all that sort of stuff. Little Nelly as well, which we haven't even mentioned yet, mm. um, which is one of the greatest Bond gadgets, I think. Uh, one of the great vehicles in film history, I think. Um, and But I think over time, um, after, you know, delving more into into Bond, it's, it, it slipped down. But now I just think this is the type of Bond film that I love. It's over the top. It's camp. It's exotic. It's like Sean says, it's full of explosions. It's full of great characters. It's full of great um, costumes. It's just over the top Bond. And I think when I look at it in the, the, sort of the 25 films, this Spy Who Loved Me, obviously both directed by Lewis Gilbert, there's a lot mm-hmm. to com- compare and contrast with those two films. And I would always put The Spy Who Loved Me right at the very top of my list. Um, but this film did a lot of it first. <laughs> and so right. really it's grown in stature for me. And the way I look at this film is it, it to the, the analogy is, is for me, it's like when your favorite band, you know, they hit the big time and they then go to America, they get the best <laughs> studio, they decide to make stadium rock and they just go all in, you know, this is that movie for bond for me. They just throw all the cards onto the table and just like go go for it. And like Sean says, it's probably because they thought it was Sean's last throw of the dice. So um, for mm. that reason, it's now top. It's it's a top tier Bond film for me. And I think the big screen experience just reinforces that really um, for sure. So to extend your rock metaphor, they turned it to eleven. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Do you share your rankings, James or? I did with Mr. Mark O'Connell in that little piece he did with the top five. But, but what, you, um, what would your tier be for this one? That's a good question. Um, probably middle tier um, because there's elements of it that don't connect with me. I was interested to hear you both saying how Connery doesn't look bored in this film. Um, that's usually the easy review, right, of this movie's Connery's bored, he's quitting. Um, I think it, it it's it fluctuates because when he's on location, I think he's it's – it's Goldfinger and Thunderbolt-esque, his performance. But you know when they're back at the studio doing the blue screen work on Little Nelly and all the other bits and pieces, he'd rather be somewhere else playing golf. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so it's 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 a very hodgepodge kind of film um, for me. But the spectacular, the, the, the spectacle and the scale of it um, can't be disputed. The, the other thing is Chekhov's rocket in this film. It's like... <laughs> You see it in the beginning, the opening of the film, and you have Bond put on the astronaut outfit and the the helmet and the everything, and he's just about to get in, and they're like, no, no, no. <laughs> Bond is not going into space. Um, 
so it's a little bit of a tease on that front. Obviously, we'd have to wait, you know, twelve years for Bond to actually go into space. But um, there's there's things like that. I know I was always curious as to like what did audiences at the time think of like this is Bond in space? No, it's not. You know, um, they take it right up to the line and not do it. So yeah, it's a bit all over the place for me, and that's why it's a bit of a mixed bag. It's it's slow in places and then like action packed in others. And yeah, to me, it's just an inconsistent film, but it's beautiful um, visually and audibly. Um, and as we all know the plots and we all know the lines and we all know the characters, we all know what's going to happen <clears throat> as we get older and we watch these films more and more. The cinematography and the soundtrack, like those are the things that we, I think I personally like latch onto more than what's actually happening on screen. And um, so in that sense, it's a beautiful film. That's a long rambling answer to say it's middle of the road. <laughs> all right. So um, thank you, Tom, Sean. And Luella. And if you're in the UK and you're listening to this contemporaneously, it's early May. Um, you Only Live Twice will be on your big screen somewhere near you. And probably to echo Sean, go see it on the big screen. But, you know, maybe close your eyes and just bathe in John Barry. Yes. <laughs> for this film. And let us know what you think. You can email us at contact at jamesbondandfriends.com. And we'll see you next week for Unimagined Secret Service. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.